0: Good morning. Good morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14. I also wanted to take a moment, I hope I don't embarrass them, to acknowledge some dear friends of Carrie's and mine who were visiting us, the Schindler family from Minnesota. When I moved to Minnesota, which was five years ago this week, uh, I stayed with them for a month uh, when I was finding a place to live and when Carrie moved to Minnesota, which was four years ago this week, um, she also stayed with him for a couple of weeks before she found a place before we got married and um, definitely some of our first friends as a couple and just very, very dear to Carrie and I. They were traveling through and uh, stayed with us last night and with all the time that we spent in their home, it was uh, fun to have them at our house last night. And so just wanted to acknowledge them and how much they've always meant to carry a night. Uh John chapter 14. By the way, I also told them that we always have this backdrop behind me. Um, um, it's amazing how they captured the Sista Park skyline for UPS. Yes. Uh, And as Steve said a moment ago, certainly please be praying this week for VBS. Uh, For everybody who's volunteering in VBS, thank you in advance. Um, You know, such a great way to serve the community. And something that being still pretty new to this community, uh, other people from town, other people from other churches would ask me about, you guys don't VBS this year, don't VBS this year. And so I know it's very much appreciated in town that we do it. And uh, I know it's going to be a great week. Uh, John chapter 14 is where we'll be. I actually decided to cut the passage a couple verses shorter than what's in the bulletin. Uh, We'll be in verses 15 through 21. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we again thank you for the opportunity and joy and privilege to come together to worship you through prayer, through a song, through the preaching of your word. Lord, and as we do that week by week, may we be edified and strengthened by that, and ever increasingly pointed to you, Lord. Lord, we pray for our time in your word today, that it would be faithful to your word. And Lord, we do pray, especially for VBS this week. Lord, we pray for the opportunity to minister to the kids from this church and to minister to kids from the community and surrounding area, from other churches or who don't have a home church, to be able to share biblical truth with them this week. And so we pray for that. And we pray that you would use that in their hearts and lives, Lord, to point them to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I get started, I also want to mention, I talked to uh, June and Ruby this week, and uh, they just wanted to pass along their love to the church, and they just appreciate you all so much. and uh, They wanted me to say hi for them. I was reading this week in 2019, Merrill Lynch and Age Wave did a survey of Americans over the age of 55 about end-of-life planning. And 45% of those over the age of 55 did not have a living will. And when it came to having a living will an advanced directive on end-of-life decisions and a power of attorney, that applied to just 18% of people. Now, some might think well, those legal affairs aren't as relevant to everyone. That may be, but in the survey, nearly half expressed concern that they lacked an advocate to look out for their interests at the end of their lives. Planning for the end is not an enjoyable task. And on the night before he was to go to the cross, Jesus was telling his disciples of the provision that he was going to make for them when he was gone. He knew the agony and torture that awaited him. But here he is Thinking about the disciples. He was going away to the Father, but Jesus told the disciples that he would not leave them as orphans. And in this passage this morning, we'll talk about two provisions which Jesus made for the disciples the promise of the Holy Spirit and the promise of his own return. Ultimately, this passage is robustly Trinitarian. As we see all three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all working in the process of salvation. And with that, we'll jump into our passage this morning. Beginning in the first part, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Verse 15 begins, If you love me, you will keep my commands. Between our passage this morning and the following passage in John, there are three times when Jesus will tie obedience to him with love for him. And the next several verses all hinge on this if statement in verse 15. But what does it mean to keep his commands? Certainly there are ethical commands that Jesus gives. There are commands to love God and to love our neighbor. And it will also include the commands ultimately have faith and believe in Jesus. Something that's interesting to note about this verse, D.A. Carson points this out, that this is actually the first time in the Gospel of John where Jesus has called the disciples to love him. Jesus has talked about love for the Father and the Father's love for him and for us. Jesus has talked about the disciples need to love each other and his love for the disciples and he's talked about the importance of loving God. And he's talked about an eternal life. But here he talks about the importance of loving him. And love results in keeping his commands. Truly knowing Jesus. Truly getting what the gospel is results in a life that is changed by the gospel. And so as a result of verse 15, Jesus continues speaking. Verses 16 and 17, he says... And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I alluded to this in the beginning, but consider the Trinitarian theology of this passage. You have the Son saying that he will ask the Father to give the Spirit. In verse 16, Jesus says that he will give another helper. The ESV uses the word helper. It comes from the Greek word paraclete. And the way the word is translated varies a bit, quite a bit in English translations. The ESV, the NASB, and the New King James all say helper. The Old King James says comforter. The NIV and NLT both say advocate. The Christian Standard Bible says counselor. The message Bible says friend, which is what the message would say. It's such a rich and multifaceted term that I think English translations sometimes struggle to capture the full meaning of the word. In a sense, all of those translations are right because they all capture different aspects of what it means. The paraclete, the spirit, is all of those things he is our helper comforter advocate counselor and friend and so instead of talking about which of those words works best i think it's helpful to take just a moment to get a sense of how the word is used in the bible and to allow that to paint a picture of what the paraclete the helper does also it's worth noting that jesus says another helper and that's because Jesus, too, is a paraclete. Paraclete is not the Greek word for Holy Spirit. Again, it means helper, helper comforter, advocate. Jesus is the first paraclete. And it is the Spirit who is the second paraclete, who will come after Jesus has gone. The Greek word paraclete is used four times in the Gospel of John, and once, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, and those are that is the extent of its usage in the entire New Testament. In his commentary on John, I think Colin Cruz is helpful in giving a biblical context and pointing out how it's used in John. Again, 1 John 2.1 refers to Jesus as the helper. In our passage this morning in verses 16 and 17, the paraclete will comfort the disciples after Jesus has departed, and the paraclete will testify to the truth of Jesus against a hostile world that opposes him. Later on in this chapter, John 14, 26, the term paraclete is used again, and we see that the paraclete teaches. Let's look at that verse. John 14, 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. It's not just any teaching, but teaching what Christ has taught. We see it again in John chapter 15, verse 26. The paraclete testifies on Jesus' behalf. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. I won't read the whole section, but we see it again in John 16, verses 7 through 11 where it says that the paraclete reveals our sin and testifies to the truth of Christ in a fallen world. In many churches, it can be easy to underappreciate the work that the Holy Spirit does in our lives, but the Christian life would be impossible without him. In the book, Creature of the World, the authors give an illustration about a river in Louisiana called the, and I might say it wrong, I think it's Atchafalaya, It's an important river for industrial and commercial purposes. But it's totally dependent on the Mississippi River. It is a distributary of the Mississippi, which means that it breaks off of the Mississippi River and flows out of it. But otherwise, it has no other water source. So if the water in the Mississippi River is high, the Atchafalaya will be high. And if the Mississippi is low, the Atchafalaya will be low. But ultimately, the Atchafalaya River owes all that it has and all that it is to something outside of itself. The river, for economic purposes, achieves what it achieves because of its source. And so it is with the Holy Spirit. Continuing in our passage, end of verse 16. Jesus has talked of how he will provide this helper. This Paraclete, he says, to be with you forever. Jesus had an earthly ministry that lasted for a finite amount of time. It was short, about three years. But he gives the Holy Spirit who will be with us forever. When Jesus was saying these words, at the time, it had not yet been realized. The disciples were not yet indwelled by the Spirit. We see the Spirit poured out in the book of Acts as part of the activities associated with the new covenant and the new age in light of the gospel. In the new covenant, the people of God who have faith in the gospel will have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. And so when Jesus says, in verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commands, the reason why that is ultimately true is due to the work of the Holy Spirit. Love for Christ, obedience to Christ, and the Holy Spirit all work together. Because it will be the Holy Spirit who enables people and who does enable people to live for Christ. The world so often misunderstands the heart of the gospel and of the Christian life, but sadly still, Far too many Christians misunderstand this. And we misunderstand the spiritual aspect of our faith. That the Bible does not teach, just be good and God will love you. That's what the world often thinks Christianity is. And again, too many Christians think that way. Strive to be good enough. But that is exactly what the gospel is not. We are saved by grace. But... For a person who truly has faith, they have the Spirit, and to have the Spirit is to have the Spirit working in you. And it is that which results in a life that is changed by the gospel. So do you see the difference? Because it is subtle. Christianity is not you be good enough so God will accept you. It's that you're not good enough, but on the merit of Christ, God will accept you. And for the person who truly has faith in Christ, they have the Spirit, and it is the Spirit who works goodness through them from the inside out. So we are not saved because of our own goodness, but to have a life that is unaffected by the gospel shows a person who doesn't truly believe in the gospel. And that is why Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Because in the new covenant, the time that we're in now... True love for Jesus is in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has a ministry which carries on the work of Christ. Without the Spirit, the river dries up. It is by the Holy Spirit that we are born again when we have faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit teaches us and points us to righteousness. The Holy Spirit bears fruit in our lives, which enables us to live according to the virtues and values exemplified by Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The Spirit equips us with spiritual gifts to use in order to serve God and to build his kingdom. And the Spirit convicts us of sin while also working in us to sanctify us and transform us. To a greater and greater love for God. Love for the things of God. Love for the righteousness and holiness of God. Among many other things. Jesus has talked about following him. Following him. Giving the spirit. But in our passage he next starts to talk about how the world does not receive him nor know him. Verse 17. Where he says even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. This week I saw a video online of an atheist had posted and I was talking about the gospel with some of the people in this group. Probably not the most constructive time. But it really struck me, the things that people were saying. And it was interesting to to me the disdain that some of the people in this comment section had for the gospel. Truly, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. People claim that man can be good and is good, and that it is God who is bad for judging humanity. That it is not humanity that has fallen, but that it is God who made the wrong decisions, made the mistakes of creating the world how it is. That's on God, not man not our sin, that if God were truly good or truly powerful, he would have done X differently or Y or Z differently. He would do different things, putting ourselves in the judgment seat. That it is not humanity that is sinful and prideful, but it's God who's narcissistic by wanting us to worship him. The gospel is either the greatest news you've ever heard, or it is foolishness, it is offensive. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul talks about the natural man and the spiritual man. 1 Corinthians 2.14, he says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Jesus talks of how the world does not understand the Spirit, doesn't know the Spirit. And so when Jesus says, You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. In one sense, the disciples are already acquainted with the Spirit because they have Jesus. And the works of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit are intimately tied together. Jesus, in his ministry, is anointed by the Spirit. That is what it means when he says that the Spirit dwells with them. And while the Spirit dwells with them... In the ministry of Jesus, later, and it's the age that we live in now, the Spirit will be in them. And the same Spirit is in every Christian, every person who believes in the gospel throughout the world. There is no such thing as a Christian who does not have the Spirit. John chapter 3, when Jesus talks to Nicodemus, he says... Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again of the Holy Spirit. That is the blessing to which believers in Christ are privileged to have. But on the eve of his death, that thought might not have brought all that much consolation to the disciples. There are lots of things that don't always really console us, don't always make us feel better. Maybe they should, even when they're true. There's the famous passage, one of the best-known passages in the Bible, Romans eight twenty eight. all things work together for good for those who love the Lord, who are called according to his purposes. But when you're really struggling, sometimes that, even though you might intuitively or intellectually know that it's true, Sometimes it doesn't really make you feel better when you're actually struggling. There are the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. We are adopted as his children. We are a new creation. On and on and on we could go of the spiritual blessings that we have as a result of faith. But they don't always stir us the way they should. Jesus has promised the Holy Spirit... But in order for them to have the Holy Spirit, he must first go to the cross. And perhaps the disciples still don't even fully understand that when he's speaking. But Jesus tells them something else which will both confirm who he is and will confirm the promise of the Spirit that he's just made. And that brings us to our second point. In verse 18, Jesus subtly transitions from talking about the Spirit and the giving of the Spirit to talking of his own return. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, when Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, that seems to have a double meaning. The disciples will not be orphans, both because they will be given the Spirit of Truth, who will be the helper with them forever, And they will not be orphans because Christ himself will return. And at the end of the verse, he says, I will come to you. Scholars have interpreted that verse different ways. I think the best evidence is that he's referring here to the resurrection. That on the night before he went to the cross, Jesus was promising his disciples that he would come back. Given what will follow. I believe that that is what makes the most sense because Jesus will start talking to the disciples about what is revealed and what the world is blind to, both in light of his resurrection. That there is an immediacy of Christ's coming back, which I think fits better with his first coming, his resurrection appearances. Verse 19. Jesus says... Get a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live, you also will live. Here, Jesus is clearly talking about the circumstances of his death and resurrection. When he says, the world will see me no more, again, it's referring to the fallen humanity. That those who are not of God, who are not his disciples. And on the eve of his death on the cross, it is true that the world will not see him again. His resurrection appearances are exclusively to those who are his disciples or to those who become his disciples, such as when he appears to Saul. And while the world will not see him again, the disciples will see the risen Lord. In John's gospel, most specifically, we see it in chapters 20 and 21. And not only will the disciples see Jesus, they will have life because of Jesus. Because I live, you also will live. Life in Christ has been talked about all throughout this gospel. In John chapter 11, when Jesus' friend Lazarus has died, Jesus has proclaimed, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe that? Again, the world loves to create its own gospel. It loves to undermine the truth. It loves to tell you that there are other ways. It loves to tell us that we can make our own way. But the gospel of John is continually confronting us with the fact that it is Christ And Christ alone, who is the way to life, and who is the giver of true life. That there is one gospel, and this is it. That Jesus would go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. Back in our passage, verse 20. Jesus says, in that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. In that day. In that day when Jesus is raised from the dead, on the first Easter, you will know. When you encounter Jesus, you will know. And we, too, are invited to know the risen Lord, to know that he died and rose and lives forever, and that life is found in him. We are invited to know him and to live in the truth of who he is and what he has done through the power of the Holy Spirit. That we can live in the knowledge and truth of that. Verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And so we're in our second point. And it's noteworthy that Jesus is mentioning obedience to his commands for a second time. And when he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them. The point is that it's not just about knowing his commandments. It's about following him. There's this complicated balance within churches of grace and law. Too many churches go too far to one extreme or the other. If you go too far to the extreme of law. You have a church that's very legalistic and self-righteous. And the danger of that is that you can start to withdraw your faith from Jesus and ultimately start putting faith in yourself, your goodness, and your righteousness. And when you do that, you've missed the whole point. You can follow a bunch of rules and not believe in Jesus. But following all the rules is worthless without faith because you'll never be good enough. But on the other side of the coin is you have churches that go too far the other direction, too far to grace to the point where we lose sight of the commands of Christ and accountability and repentance. And the danger with that is that we can start treating grace like it's a license to sin. God is loving, So it doesn't really matter what you ultimately do because God is a loving God who loves to love people. That devolves into what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. And what that means is that it cheapens the gospel. It cheapens what Christ has actually called us to. It cheapens the great cost that Jesus actually paid. Quoting from Bonhoeffer in his classic book, The Cost of Discipleship, and I've read this quote before, but it's a classic. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field for the, sake of, for the sake of it a man will go and sell all that he has it is the pearl of great price to buy that which the merchant will sell all his goods it is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out his eye which causes him to stumble it is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciples leave his nets and follow him It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were brought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap to us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our lives, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. End quote. We need balance between the two. Now, it's interesting in this passage, and I think the key to balancing this is found in our passage. And we'll close with this point. Let's look again. In verse 20, Jesus says, You will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest manifest myself to him. Jesus speaks of his unity with the Father. He's said similar things many other times in this gospel. But what's unique to this passage is that Jesus also adds and you in me, and I in you. That we will be in Christ. That when we have faith in the gospel, we are united in Christ. That's not to say that we are Christ, or are in some way deified. But we are forgiven in Christ. We are loved in Christ. We have union in Christ. Jesus and the Father have perfect unity with each other. And we have a share of that when we are in Christ, when we have faith in the gospel. Now, we are still human and still sinful, so that is not a perfect union, not what it will be at the end of times. But we are in Christ, and Christ is in us through the Spirit. And so Jesus says, And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. That to love Jesus is to be loved by God. Because Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the one whom God sent. Jesus is the one who goes to God on our behalf. Jesus is the one who sits at the right hand of God. Again, John's gospel gives no wiggle room. Jesus is not just a great teacher. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the one who gives us the privilege of coming to God and being known and loved by God. And Jesus says that he will manifest himself to us. That we will have a greater and greater sense of the truth and love that are in Christ. As a result of having the Spirit. As we live for Christ and walk with Christ. And that is why our, la- our lives matter and what we do matters. Because our life is not our own. When we truly know Jesus, when we truly love Jesus, Jesus changes us from the inside out. True faith creates a new person who can never again be the same. And the world does not understand that message. Again, the world thinks Christianity is just a guy telling people to be good and mocking that because you should know that already. Christianity is living a new spiritual life in Christ to the glory of God. And because we're still finite people in a fallen world, we will do that imperfectly. And the good news is that there is grace when we fail. But the costly grace of the gospel is that Jesus calls us to live for who he is. To live in the knowledge of the price that he paid for our forgiveness. And that is either beautiful to you or detestable. It is either the wisdom of God or it's an absurdity. But what is it to you? Is it the bedrock upon which to build your life? And is, is it what is shaping your life? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, again, we come to you in gratitude for the infinite grace that Jesus offers to us as people who do not deserve it. Lord, may we live every day of our lives in the light of that and be shaped and transformed by that.